Hello, and welcome to the Imposter Syndrome Network podcast, where everyone belongs, especially if you think you don't. My name is Chris Grundeman, and I'm here with the always amazing Zoe Rose. Hey. Hey, this is the Job Snyder's episode, and I think you're going to love it. Job is a principal engineer at Fastly, where he analyzes and architects global networks for future growth. Job has been actively involved in the internet community in both operational, engineering, and architectural capacities as a frequent presenter at network operator events such as Nanog, ITNOG, DKNOG, RIPE, NLNOG, and Apricot, and in a number of community projects for over 15 years. Job is the co chair of the IETF Grow Working Group, a director of PeeringDB, a director of the Route Server Support Foundation and a member of the RIPE NCC Executive Board. As if that's not enough, he's also a developer and art director for the OpenBSD project. Hey, Job, would you like to introduce yourself a bit further to the Imposter Syndrome Network? Hey, Chris. Hey, Zoe. Thank you for having me here. I'm uh, excited to have a a conversation, uh, I guess, about me, <laughs> which is uh, something I'm not super used to because usually I very much focus on technical uh, stories, problems, and solutions. But yeah, I'm uh, a Dutch Netherlands-based engineer, and I really like internet routing security, and that's where I direct virtually all of my life's energy towards. But I also have some hobbies, not to you know take away from just being a, a geek all of the time, like uh, hiking and running. So this is me. Fantastic. Well, we'll dive right in here. I personally consider myself a creative person, and I often call myself a creative technologist. But you, Job, as I mentioned just now, are the art director for the OpenBSD project. Can you tell us a little bit about what that means? It means it is my responsibility to ensure that every half year when OpenBSD publishes a new release of the operating system, there is artwork that goes along with it. So I uh, commission artists to create a poster and a banner and uh, something to uh, you know cheer up the celebration of yet another release. So every six months, I work with a new artist, you know, put a little bug in there here on, on what the theme or concept of the art could be, and then let them do their thing. And I pay them for it because I am not of the type, you know, this is great for your resume. Um, <laughs> So the trick here is uh, uh, we, we print and sell T-shirts and the profits of selling merch are used towards funding the next artist. Oh, nice. So you don't pay them in exposure. <laughs> that's good. Yeah, I, I, that's one part I love about uh, security is the constant development of stickers and uh, all of those fun things. No, that's really interesting. I have a question that is not specifically job-related, but more, how in the bloody hell do you measure manage such a seemingly busy schedule? I mean, you've got like all of the directors and all of the chairs and, and you have a job and you do this. How, how do you manage that? Am I managing it? I don't know if I'm doing the best job possible, but I think the trick is to, my, my employer is super supportive of the community work I do. So some of the time budget definitely comes from that space. And I think another good ingredient is to build small teams that are efficient in working together in a way that the the activity doesn't cost everybody more time than is needed. So for example, for the, the Route Server Support Foundation, 
this is a, a foundation I set up, I think, three years ago to uh, basically convert money into the production of open source software. And the developers we hire in this foundation are very autonomous. So they, I don't need to do daily handholding to, to check in if they're being productive and are on the right track, but it's a very hands-off approach. My fellow board members each have excellent skills that save me a lot of time. So the treasurer is actually a, a financial professional. <laughs> so yeah, I, I think uh, it's, it's uh, in part to be surrounded with people that, that work well together. And in part, all of these activities very much align with my, my desire for innovation in internet routing security. So it energizes me to some degree to see progress in the individual projects that I contribute to. Yeah. So, I mean, I would assume anyway that the, the Route Server Support Foundation, since that was kind of your creation, you've been able to kind of build that team around you of, of great folks who can support the organization and not take up all of your time. I wonder in, in a lot of the other cases, you probably had less control of building those teams. Do you, do you seek out projects that already have great teams? Do you get involved and then, and then build the great team around you? Or have you just been lucky in some cases to have that kind of support structure so you can do so many things based on you know, sharing the load across some other great individuals like that? Yeah, I, I'm not sure there, there is a, a conscious strategy because especially for the elected positions, you, you're not in charge about who else is elected. I mean, the closest thing you can do is to, to encourage people you admire to make themselves available as candidates. But I guess so far, yeah, luck definitely is an ingredient. And for instance, uh, chairing an ITF working group uh, for me doesn't feel like an, an, a burden on my time because I, I am, as an, an author of various internet draft proposals, quite familiar with, with the process and how things should work. So I can very quickly move based on, on that experience and, and having been part of that community. So... Yeah, it's, you, you've got to be conscious about the activities that you pick and make sure that they are well within what you like doing and, and have some experience with. Yeah, well, I, I recently saw, and I can't remember which social media platform it was, but it was a picture of learning to say no. And it had like a bunch of different tasks and it said, uh, yes, yes, no, no, yes, yes. And then you could see the yeses were 100%, the noes were obviously zero. And then it had the other side is if you say yes to everything, and it's like percentages of progress and nothing is complete. And so I think that just goes really to what you're saying is you can say yes to everything, but if it's not something you're necessarily that good at or enjoy, it's going to take longer and actually impact the rest of your areas as well. So I think that's, that's one thing that I've had to learn <laughs> and I'm still learning that saying no is good too. Yeah, definitely. I have to say no to things as well. I know that at this point in time with the obligations I have to various institutions, there, there is no additional time to take on more volunteer roles. So something somewhere needs to free up before I can uh, change positions, definitely. And that, that means saying no. <laughs> yeah, definitely. When we prepare for these talks, we get like some quotes or uh, LinkedIn history and that and put it in a, a chart and one quote that we had was internet routing system hacker. What does that mean to you? And uh, and what would be your definition of a hacker as well? 
I mean, obviously I work in security, but I always like to hear everybody's definitions. I'm a hacker in the sense that the OpenBSD project uses. I, I like to tinker with things, look for their weak points, their strong points, understand the system, and then come up with uh, innovations to, to further strengthen the system. And in a, a sort of playful way, I envision that there is this game between on, on the one hand, uh, myself as a player, and on the other hand, unknown entities that maybe know more than I do or are looking at things differently, and to try and be ahead of everybody in building defenses uh, to help protect the global internet routing system. So a lot of the time, I look at programs from the perspective of how can I break it, what error conditions could exist in the future that, that negatively impact this component in, in the whole machine and then try to fix that before someone else finds the same issue and exploits it. Another form of hacking, other than kind of taking things apart, putting them back together and, and, and looking for vulnerabilities, as you mentioned, is potentially just really playful or doing things that are, you know, use a tool or a system for something that it wasn't intended to do for. And you've done that as well. I believe one of the most fun things I've seen you do anyway is drawing the Nyan cat on Ripe's Statmon interface. But folks who don't know or aren't following internet routing may not know what any of those words mean other than maybe Nyan cat. Um, but <laughs> so, so maybe you could tell us a little bit about, about what, that, what that project looked like and, and, and what it was and, and maybe even why you did it. Sure, yeah, yeah. So, some time ago, I stumbled upon a very interesting visualization tool that Ripe and CC had developed and you could input a prefix, and then it would show a graph where it, it showed the stability of the more specific prefixes over time. And it, it used a, a color gradient uh, where red meant the prefix was not visible, and, and green means the, the prefix is visible on many uh, vantage points. And I, I don't know exactly how or why, but at, at some point it popped into my head that this graph which was intended as a debugging tool for operators to offer a, a certain perspective, the stability of, of prefixes in the global routing system could also be manipulated to some degree and uh, used to draw, to purposefully draw an image in this tool. So I happened to have access to a, a giant IP4 block. My, my previous uh, employer, NTT, made, made a slash 16 available to me. And this tool worked on, on the, the slash 24 boundary. So this effectively gave me 256 rows. Uh, and by flapping the individual slash 24s, I could create pixels. So I, I did a small test run and, and uh, printed the phrase NTT in a, a heart uh, <laughs> in the system. And when that succeeded, I was like, all right, I, I got to go big. What is something that can, what is like an endless image and the nine cats, that moving GIF where it just keeps moving forward in a wavy fashion uh, felt very appropriate for this type of visual output display. So I put a small Python script to work and it took like months <laughs> during which I kept absolutely silent about the effort. And at some point, I was like, okay, I, I think it's, it's ready to, to share with the world. And I think the world uh, thought it was very humorous to see that, that very serious debugging tool used in, in such a way. Yeah, I love it. 
really fun and, and definitely great. I think a lot of folks got a kick out of it. And I think it also served to potentially promote this tool that Ripe had out there. I think uh, I think there's definitely at least dozens of people who, who maybe didn't even know that this interface was available until uh, people started passing around, uh, you know, links and images to the to the cat. So I think it uh, it worked out great on many fronts. And it also kind of reminds me of you know, obviously in a, in a more serious fashion, the time you've put into a bunch of other tools, right? So IRRD, the OpenBSD RPKI validator. There's some RPKI clients and, and, and debuggers, uh, the BGP Q4 kind of policy uh, builder, open BGPD. I think I can probably go on and on and on with just a bunch of, of words that won't make any sense to anyone who hasn't used these tools. They can find them all. But, you know, back to Zoe's point about, you know, not only do you have all these kind of director level positions that you're, that you're doing in addition to your full-time job, but there's a lot of software you've developed over, over, the t- over time, which often I'm sure takes months or years of, of work. To, to get it right and, and move it forward. So I, I don't want to ask the same question again of like, how do you do all this? But, but I, I do see a theme here. We, we talked to Dean Nelson a while back on the show, and then he talked about his ability to do so many things was in large part because all of the things were focused kind of on, on one piece, right? And then he kind of had his, his kind of personal mission statement, I guess you would say, around what he was working on. And although he had a bunch of projects, they all kind of you know, lock together and, and, and move forward. And it seems like you've done the same thing, right? I mean, everything kind of revolves around internet routing, internet routing security and pushing those things forward. I mean, and does that resonate with you? Is that, is that kind of part of how this works and, and being able to get so much done? Is that it's focused in a way? Yeah, absolutely. Earlier in my career, I, I was a, a network operator. The ISP I worked for used Cisco and, and Juniper Gear, and, and you, you had to work with the tools that you had. As my understanding of the internet routing system grew, I, I started to recognize that there were these giant holes in, in the system ripe for abuse. And abuse in this context isn't even evil adversaries trying to ruin somebody's day, but also people that just make a typo. And if you look at your keyboard, that you know the numbers are super close to each other, so it's very easy to punch in a two when you intended to press the free button. Um, and then suddenly someone on the other side of the planet is like, holy crap, my prefix is being hijacked and it's causing me downtime and, and what is going on? So looking at the tools that the internet community had available to improve the quality of the data that is passed around in this system, uh, I, I started to recognize that there, there were gaps that needed addressing and that perhaps nobody else other than me was going to do it. I think to some degree there is uh, always this this bystander effect that people acknowledge. Yes, this this is not optimal, or or even worse, this thing is broken, and that's it. <laughs> so um, I didn't want things to to stop there. I felt that there was ample opportunity to move the status quo in in a better direction, and that it that I was positioned in in a way to to make that change. That there were people around me or, or employers that were supportive of such initiatives so that if there's time and budget and willingness, then yeah, let's let's make it happen. So in the case of IRD, the original IRD was developed by Murat, associated with the University of Michigan, if I'm not mistaken. And it was this program written in C and organically developed over the course of, of multiple decades. 
And I realized at some point that that type of database would benefit from uh, a cleanup mechanism based on RPKI. And RPKI in this context is uh, cryptographically verifiable higher source of truth compared to what the IRD daemon contains. And I recognize that, that, that extending the C version of IRD to integrate in a certain way w- with the RPKI was, was not feasible. Every time I change something in that program, in some other random part of the program, things started falling apart. And, and at some point, I concluded like I lack the oversight of this program, and we need to start from scratch. Uh, this is the only path forward. We, this program is a dead end. So I went to my employer with a pitch, and I said, hey, I know this developer, and she is very experienced with this type of database, and she would do a great job if we allow her to rewrite it. And this, this was years ago. And I also recognize that the time in this sense is not so relevant, because as long as things happen at some point in time, then the decades after that will enjoy the benefits of that program. So yes, it would have been cool to have it yesterday, but the next best day to, to plant a tree is tomorrow, right? So, <laughs> so in, in the case of the IRD program, because the development itself was outsourced to, to a super knowledgeable person that required from my side to focus more on, on testing and architectural questions, and that significantly reduced the workload for me. And now we've gone to the point where Merit themselves in October deploy IRD version 4, the, the full rewrite. So we've come full circle that, that the original organization has now latched onto to the new version um, that was developed outside that organization. And RADB being the world's biggest database of IR and, and now receiving RPKI-based filtering is a, a massive step forward in uh, the global routing security posture because by them deploying the software everybody benefits and at that point i don't care that it took five years <laughs> it, it happened so goal achieved well two things stood out to me there is years ago i took an entrepreneur class because i had to and i at the time was like this is silly but actually a lot of things i learned in there were really beneficial but the the first thing that you mentioned is, you know, you were inspired by your normal working day and the challenges you found, the limitations you found. Because I think a lot of people get so overwhelmed. They're like, I'm not creative. I can't think of things. I don't know what to do. But it could be as simple as, well, what issues do you see and what solutions can you propose? Because actually, if you're having that issue, somebody else is as well. Unless it's like, super niche but even that's still cool um and then the second thing that uh, stood out to me is how you started that you know you proposed to the company to make use of their resources because you know our time costs money money costs money <laughs> you know so there is limitations to what we can do as individuals but we can also as you say you know make use of those resources that already exist in there to create for the community and lead by example here, you've clearly been very successful in that approach as well. So those are really, those for me were really two takeaways that were really interesting. I've never taken that approach. I've always been 
oh, I'll do it myself. But I really like the idea, especially now that I'm about to be a mum of two, um, I really like the idea of making use of existing resources, even if there's grants out there, for example, because some governments do certain grants. So that's really, I like that point that you made. Another question that came up through listening to you talk about this is, these are quite complex topics. And often when we go into things that are quite complex and take a long time to solve, we feel a little bit like, are we doing the right thing? Am I smart enough to do this? Am I achieving what I want? So has there ever been a time that you actually felt like an imposter and maybe got a little bit demotivated? And how were you able to kind of overcome that? Yeah, that is a, a super fun question. I mulled that over before we started this session. It's like, is, is imposter syndrome something I, I have experienced? And I think the answer is probably no. Because years ago, in, in a moment of, of insecurity, I, I reflected on what is it I do? Can I do the things I want to do? And from time to time, confirming that things are real. So for example, I use my own software. I have my own router at home. I, I use OpenBGPD. I, I use the RPKI validator. I use IRD having this almost physical connection to those projects and, and not being in a position where I give guidance over a project where I do not experience all the outcomes myself, I can I have this feedback loop that, that I am in fact doing something that is meaningful. Because if where I would feel insecurity is is when I when I am the one that has to make a decision. Like we, we implement this feature or we don't, or we, we do design A instead of B, and then we'll not be the one that suffers from that decision if it was bad. And as long as I suffer the consequences of my own decisions, <laughs> I can confirm that I'm on the, on the right track. So really, really eating my own dog foods is, is I think, helpful. And I, I also consider it sort of, exercises like i when i propose something in the ietf i oftentimes write the implementation myself so that i can confirm that i can program the thing i'm proposing so it's not imaginary it's not a theoretical exercise i can confirm to myself that it is real and that helps uh, myself to understand whether the proposal has merits but also helps the community understand that this is not that, that the proposal is real. <laughs> so yeah, I, I think that those type of activities help, help me stay grounded and to some extent avoid the, the pitfall of imposter syndrome. Uh, that makes a lot of sense. We had another guest on not too long ago, Rosemary Wang, who talked about something kind of similar, which was that you know she wrote a book and we asked her kind of the same feeling, right? I mean, how, how scary is that? And she had a similar approach, which was, you know, I'm not trying to be an expert in all things or in everything or, or even just general, but I'm talking about my experiences. And so I know that the thing that I did worked for me at that time. And that's all I'm telling you is that the thing I did worked for me at that time. And as long as I stick to that context, then there really isn't too much fear there because it's just a true statement at that point. It's, it's not, uh, I'm not kind of overreaching or, or making any grandiose claims or anything like that. It sounds like that's been similar for you because you're actually working on the thing you're working on and, and, and suffering the pains if it's wrong and knowing that it's right when it works. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And another key ingredient is having a good support network. 
So both in, inside the OpenBSD project and, and the IETF, there, there are reviewers that, that will confirm your understanding, that will compare that the natural language you use to describe the change matches up with the, the code that you've wrote. And in the OpenBSD project, you cannot commit code to the code base unless at least one other person knowledgeable in that area also looks at it and is willing to attach their name to it. And, and the same goes for ITF. I, I can go to a working group and pitch an idea, but if and if the idea gains some some traction, there will be there are multiple review points where where other people take a look at what the proposal exactly entails and whether it is implementable for them. And these multiple rounds of review at, at various stages of proposals also help me stay based because I I'm not flying solo. This this all of this is a team effort and. The participation of other people is key to that. I was wondering, because you seem to have quite excellent experiences with your community and with your places you've worked and the support, as you just mentioned, the support of your community. I am curious if you were ever in a situation where either maybe you didn't have as supportive of an environment or maybe there was a person that you didn't work that well with and how... One, you identified that because that's one thing in my career I struggle with is identifying where maybe it's not the right environment for me. And two, how did you get past that? Did you immediately leave or did you think, oh, okay, I need to restructure the way I'm working, for example? Then again, you could say, no, I've always had the best people ever. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I, I think uh, like years ago, more than a decade ago, I, I worked at a small ISP and the relationship with my manager was challenging at times. The, the manager was somewhere on the spectrum and yeah, this impacted communication. And I, I'm skeptical that I am fully normal <laughs> myself. But yeah, at, at some point I, I started to recognize that, that being part of the company caused stress, sleepless nights. And I think it was through feedback from friends where they pointed out like, hey, this, this isn't necessarily normal. You know, you have a choice that I realized that it, it might be good to change my environment and, and look for other opportunities. And at that point, I started my uh, one-person entrepreneurship uh, as a consultant and even later returned to that company because we, we managed to, to restore our, our social connection, but also joined other companies. And all in all, that, that, that was super cool because being a consultant meant that my hourly wage was decent enough that I only needed to work two or three days a week for, for money. And that gave me two or three days a week to, to work on volunteer things because I recognized that I, I don't need to work full-time for a salary, but I can work full-time for everything that, that interests me. So for instance, the analog ring debugging project is a direct result of me having that time available back then. And especially in the beginning, it was a lot of work, which I happily put into the project because I, I was the boss of my own time and I you know, had my, my basics uh, covered in terms of food and shelter. So there was opportunity to, to build things that had no, made no commercial sense whatsoever. Yeah, I, I think looking back, I, I've, I've worked at wonderful companies with wonderful people and I hope that we'll uh, stay that way the, the remainder of my uh, career. Awesome. Yeah, we do too. 
And unfortunately, we do not have any extra time right now. We are all out, as is often the case. So uh, we run out of time before we run out of topics. Job, do you have any any current projects or causes that you'd like to highlight to the Imposter Syndrome Network before we close out? I am spending all my time on improving the RPGI. I think uh, there are so many routing security incidents happening uh, that the only path forward is to to continue investment in a cryptographically supported infrastructure that is the RPKI. And, and up until this point, it's to some degree a little bit underutilized. Uh, the RPKI is this framework on which we can build multiple applications. But so far, we've only really used one application, which is routes origin authorization and routes origin validation. But that's just one part of the puzzle. So there is also AS path spoofing and route leaks uh, and other types of incidents that are not yet fully addressed. So putting time and effort into really making a dent in in how routing has been going for the last 30 years and and seeing that improve over the years, seeing the likes of Merit uh, embrace RPGI integration at even the IR level is a very exciting field to be working in. And uh, how do I wrap this up? I think not accepting the, the status quo is, is how you, you get there. You, if you see a, a problem and it bothers you, it probably bothers other people. If you can find those other people, you can band together and maybe come to some consensus on what the solution could be long-term or mid-term for, for that given problem. And environments like yeah, the, the North American Network Operator Group to find like-minded people that are maybe suffering from, from the same challenges to use the infrastructure that the IETF gives us uh, where there is a, a formal process to submit ideas and, and a process to follow to receive feedback and, and review and, and go through the motions to eventually publish things uh, in a place where other people can find them. Yeah, there there's a wealth of resources out there and it's fun to, to, to make use of those resources and to encourage other people to use those resources. Absolutely. Yeah, that's great. Joe, thank you so much for sharing your story uh, and your journey with the Imposter Syndrome Network. And thank you to all of our listeners uh, for your time, your attention, and your support. Please do remember that if you found this episode insightful or interesting, we'd love for you to consider paying it forward by letting others know about the show and the great guests we have on. We only have a, a, f- a few moments left. We've probably gone a little longer than we normally do, Joe. But I, I, I would like to know if you could quickly tell us what the most valuable lesson you've learned in your career is. Um, all we do was built by other humans that are as fallible as, as we ourselves are. Very early on in my career, I viewed the IETF as this faraway entity, and I had no idea how any of that worked and how Cisco or Juniper or others decided what features would be part of their products. I I was like a a passive sufferer of other people's inventions. And then through the years, I learned that that there is ways to to fix problems, that you you can, for instance, open a a case with the technical assistance center of the vendor and, and point out that there is a defect and that they then fix it. That if there is issues in internet standards, that those internet standards are not set in stone, but can be updated and amended over time, and that there is a process to do so. 
And every time I draw away the curtains and unpeel yet another layer of how the internet really works, I discover another room filled with people just like me who are trying their best <laughs> with the information available to them at that time. And, and that on the one hand, that there is no perfect oversight of the internet, that it's, it's not perfect, can be scary. On the other hand, it is encouraging that it, it was built by people just like me. And that means that, that over time things can become worse, but more importantly, improve and that I can be a part of that. So yeah, there is no magic in all of this, uh, or the magic is the fact that it's a human built system and as a human, I can contribute to it. Awesome. I love that. That's a great way to end it. Thanks again. And we will be back next week. Zoe's going to take some maternity leave shortly, and we want the episodes to keep going out weekly, so we're kind of stacking them up, which the only reason I'm prefacing all that is this won't actually air until the 2nd of January. Is that the first of the year? The first one of the year? Yeah, this will be the first one mm-hmm. of the year. Everybody with their extreme hangovers can listen to it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.